We're going to pick up this morning in Ruth chapter 3, where we left off last week. Now, last week, we spent a significant amount of time reviewing the different allusions to earlier Old Testament accounts that we find in this encounter between Boaz and Ruth. And a point that I tried to make as we looked at these accounts of Judah and Tamar and Lot and his daughters was that our DNA or our family heritage does not determine our destiny. And instead, we can tie ourselves into God's purposes in this world, and it transforms us so that we act as true Israelites, as the true people of God, as we seek his purposes in this earth. But then moving beyond that, I was trying to demonstrate that God often, often positions us so that we will be the answers to our own prayers for other people. So I tried to demonstrate that in Ruth chapter one, Ruth prayed that, or Naomi prayed that Ruth would find rest in the home of a husband. And now as Naomi's disposition to the Lord has changed, she's acting on on behalf of that prayer to find rest in the home of a husband for her daughter-in-law. So we, we see this in Ruth, but then we're also seeing it in Boaz. Boaz prayed that the Lord would repay Ruth as she sought to find refuge under the wing of the Lord, the God of Israel. And now he's going to act as that wing of refuge. So the point I was making is that God often positions us to answer our prayer for other people. Now, as I was considering what I talked about last week, I think that it's possible for there to be the misunderstanding that I was just simply communicating that God helps those who help themselves. And I want to be careful to say that that's not what I'm communicating. So I'm not suggesting that we follow that adage or that saying that God helps those who help themselves. What I am arguing for is quite different. I'm arguing that we can become the embodiment of God's action to further his purposes in the world, to secure his promises, and to answer prayers to him that have been made on the behalf of his people. So I want to highlight three ways that this idea of God helping those who help themselves is different than what I'm talking about so that we're not confused and so that we don't think we're acting properly when we're actually acting improperly. So the first difference is in the, in the occurrences that we've observed, the individuals who are acting are acting on behalf of the other. They're acting on behalf of someone else, not on behalf of themselves. Whenever I've heard people use this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, it's a justification for taking immoral action to secure a positive good for the self. So when, whenever that phrase is used, or at least often when that phrase is used, it's used to justify selfish action. Well, the actions we're observing are selfless, sacrificial actions on behalf of someone else. So when I'm encouraging you to take initiative and to strive to act on God's behalf, I'm encouraging you to do that on behalf of others, not on behalf of yourself. This is a different way of being in this world than the individual who uses that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, to justify whatever action they take to, to collect things for themselves, to try to make their life better by crushing other people or taking what they want. The second 
way that what I'm advocating is different than what that phrase demonstrates is that 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 phrase is relegating action and purpose to the individual acting alone, and it's minimizing God's purposes and God's action. So what I'm trying to encourage you to do is to act on God's behalf, to serve as an agent of God in this world, to further God's purposes and God's kingdom. I think the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is pointing you in a direction that would further your kingdom or the kingdom of this world and your own purposes and make that center in in your life. I want to suggest that that's different than what we're seeing in the book of Ruth. Now, at the risk of um, being too practical, I want to say that those who stormed a Capitol building and who might justify it with crosses and Jesus saves banners are furthering the kingdom of man and their initiative and their action is not what I'm talking about. So it came to my attention this week that someone not from our church heard the sermon from last week and suggested that what I was encouraging us to do was demonstrated or illustrated by a group this past week. And I want to be clear that that's not what I'm saying. I want us to further God's kingdom. And as I have said in sermons and in other places, our aim is to be followers of Jesus, the Jesus who said, my kingdom is not of this world. So whatever action you take and wherever you tack God onto your actions, I I want you not to just tack God onto your actions, but to act on God's behalf in faithfulness and steadfast love. And we, we become, I think, in danger of violating that command of not invoking God's name in vain when we start tacking God onto every action that we take and justifying it in terms of God helps those who help themselves. So if you find yourself taking actions that are not furthering God's kingdom, I just want to say to you that you're not embodying God's action in this world. God acts for his own glory and for his name. And if you're acting for your glory and your name or your kingdom, these sorts of things that are going to be demolished in the new creation and when Christ comes and every person bows to his name, then you're not doing what I'm suggesting. You're you're not embodying God's action in the world. So I just want to say that strongly and clearly to avoid being misunderstood. We are called to take initiative, to act on God's behalf, to secure his purposes and his promises. And if we read the Bible well, and we read ourselves into the Bible, we find ourselves in the new covenant where we're promised new life and a kingdom that's not of this world. And we're promised the knowledge of God. And these are the types of things that I want us to act on, to love the poor and to show Christ to other people. The third way that this idea of God helping those who help themselves, you know, the third way that this is different than what I'm advocating for is that phrase creates a math equation that says, if I take the initiative on something, God owes it to me to help me now and I'll, and he'll bless whatever I've set out to do. Well, us acting on God's behalf is not a math equation that uses God as an incantation to grab power from him that imbibes whatever we're doing with God's power. 
That, that's a wrong way of thinking. What I'm suggesting is that these characters are acting in obedient faith. These individuals are embodying the spirit of God's law and acting in faith. And what their faith is in or who their faith is in is the God who moves people from empty to full. In the God who brought people out of the land of Egypt to occupy the promised land. They believe that God has put them on a mission to secure covenantal promises. So their acts are acts of obedience and acts of faith. So if you are evaluating the actions you're taking and you're coming to see that they're not acts of faith in what God is already doing in this world, then I don't think that it's in line with what I've been arguing for as embodying God's action. Okay, I, I just wanted to clear those things up in part because of the feedback that I heard from outside and in case anyone else was confused about what I was trying to say, I want to be clear, God does call us to secure his promises and to be the answers to prayers for other people, but we need to genuinely speak in that way and not appropriate that language just to secure our own ends and our own sinful desires. All right, up to this point, I've just reiterated what we've already discussed in, in a way of review. And today I have two objectives as we finish chapter three. The first objective is to draw out the larger movement of the story. Ruth three is sort of the hinge of the story. And I have in multiple sermons suggested that Naomi is the central figure of this story. And I want to draw out again how even though Boaz and Ruth are performing most of the action in this chapter, it's action that connects to Naomi as the central figure of the story, moving from emptiness and bitterness towards the Lord to fullness and trust and rest in the Lord. So that's an overarching aim that I have this morning is to draw out that larger narrative. But then second, I want to emphasize further the theme of rest the theme of rest that begins chapter three and ends chapter three. And I want to draw a connection between the rest that is described here and the rest that we might find in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you would, turn to Ruth chapter three and we jump back in and you remember that it's at midnight, Boaz is laying asleep Ruth has come in and uncovered his feet. And that is essentially a marriage proposal. And this language of uncovering is just telling Boaz, look, I'm exposed and vulnerable and I need your protection. And uh, later on in chapter four, Boaz is going to let this other redeemer know that Naomi is going to sell her field. And he liter literally says, I wanted to uncover your ear. And so this uncovering of feet and uncovering of ear is just, I think, a way of expressing, a, of letting someone know there's a problem here. It's making someone aware of a reality. And Ruth is making Boaz aware of the reality that even though she has come to Israel under the sheltering wing of the Lord, she needs someone to embody that sheltering wing, both for her and for Naomi. And Boaz responds in verse 10, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor, indicating again that she could have gone after somebody else, but she, she pursued him. 
But verse 11, he responds, now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. So we have great hope that Boaz will act on her behalf. That hope is put in jeopardy by the fact that there's another redeemer who has the right to Naomi's property. But he goes on here to say in verse 13, stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will now lie down until morning. Remember that this is something of a sketchy scene and there are hints of impropriety in the language that are he that's here. And I think it's interesting that Boaz tells her not to go home immediately, but to lay down here. And a lot of commentators suggest that Boaz is concerned that she would be attacked in the middle of the night on the way home or something like that. And, and I think that's probably right. I think that's what Boaz is trying to do here. And he's protecting her already. Once again, he's looking out for her interests and he's not sending her off. Instead, he welcomes her into his protection. Now that he gives her the command to lie down until morning also breaks whatever sexual tension has been in the air in the story up to this point. It has now been resolved that Boaz has treated her with nobility and character and virtue, and she has done the same, and there has been no sexual impropriety that's occurred here. Instead, she's laying down in sexual purity until the morning. So sometimes you'll read modern commentators who try to suggest that there was sexual immorality that occurred this night on the threshing floor. Well, that's the exact opposite of the point that's being made. So what these commentators have done right is sense the sexual tension in the air, but then what they've missed is the breaking of the sexual tension and the highlighting of virtue as both Boaz and Ruth act with nobility as she lays down and sleeps for the rest of the night. So if you encounter someone trying to make a case that something, you know, sexually wrong happened here, it, they're, they're off base. Boaz ends this thing. He tells her to go back to sleep, protecting her from any harm she might face on the way home. So verse 14, she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, or some translation translations will say, then Boaz said to himself or thought to himself, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And so he may be talking to Ruth here. He may just be reflecting to himself, but he doesn't want anyone know. He doesn't want anyone to know that a woman's been with him that night on the threshing floor. Now we might ask, why, why not? You know, if nothing wrong happened, why is Boaz being deceptive here? Well, I, I think the answer is twofold. Number one, I think Boaz recognizes that all of the actions taken up to this point just scream impropriety. So if anyone just knew this, they would assume the worst about this Moabite woman and her noble character would be in question. So I think Boaz, on the one hand, is just wanting to protect her character from 
the wrong assumptions that people would make here. But then secondly, I think Boaz is already contriving a plan to secure his redemption rights over against the other redeemer. And he knows that if this other redeemer has heard that Ruth has visited him in this way, in a way that would hint at some level of deepening relationship, this other redeemer is going to be wise to the, the fact that Boaz really wants this, okay? So I think Boaz is just scheming here in a way that, that wants to keep everything secretive so that he can successfully work out his role as a redeemer of Naomi and eventually marry Ruth here. Now we might say, is Boaz sinning by this deception or this preemptive deception? And I don't think so. We, we, if we are being overly scrupulous, might say, Boaz is trying to hide from people what occurred here, and that amounts to preemptively lying to them. Well, you can say that, I suppose, but I think Boaz is just being wise. And, and this, I think, pushes us once again to question a black and white view of the world that doesn't have a sense or a category for wise action where we press forward to advance God's kingdom and God's aims that is surprising or goes against the cultural expectation or the norm. We, we have a category for this as Christians. And uh, I, I was reading an ethics book a couple of weeks ago, and there was this guy writing and suggesting that if, if in World War II, if you were German hiding Jews in your basement, you would be obligated to tell the Nazis if you had Jews in your basement. Well, I, I think that's a wrong way to think about ethics, and I, I think it creates these black and white categories that tries to keep a letter of the law that ignores the spirit of the law. And I think that's actually one of the purposes of the book of Ruth. Ruth is showing us how to embody the spirit of the law. And when it comes to Boaz marrying Ruth, it's actually going to violate the letter of the law from one angle. And here, one might argue that it violates the letter of the law. But I want to suggest that Boaz is acting in keeping with others who have acted virtuously, despite the fact that they could be accused of bearing false witness or hiding the truth or something like that. And in fact, the greatest example of this in the Old Testament is Boaz's mother. In the book of Matthew, we learn that Boaz's mother is Rahab. And, and when we start looking at these Old Testament accounts, we start to get forced to be uncomfortable as we think about ethics. And I think what will help us is if we keep putting ourselves in the covenantal context, the securing, securing of God's promises and the embodying of his law, and that's going to help us feel a way forward. I think the other thing that this does for us is that it cautions us against trying to simply moralize the Old Testament and find lessons of examples to follow and examples to avoid. And it protects us from the falsehood and the fantasy that we can just impose events in the Old Testament directly on events in our day and try to draw one-to-one -one correlations and just try to be that person. And, and maybe I'm not being clear here. My, my, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we read the Old Testament 
and we try to find a timeless truth and plug that nugget into our life, however we think it should fit, instead of considering the larger redemptive and covenantal context where God has put his people, and we just try to grab proof text to say we should or should not do this based on this one individual's actions. Um, So, for instance, we can look at a text like David and Goliath and try to moralize it in a way that we try to be everything that David is or something like that. That's not how we should be reading the Bible. I want us to be reading the Bible with this larger view of God's redemptive work within a covenantal context and then try to study these characters and determine how they worked out obedience or disobedience, faithfulness or unfaithfulness and try to feel our way forward in our covenantal context, embodying the spirit of the Old Testament and the spirit of God's law and being guided by the Holy Spirit. All of that to say, I don't think that we can come up with white and black propositions of action that we see in the Old Testament and then try to apply them directly in every case in in our own day. Instead, what we're seeing demonstrated here, I think in Naomi and in Ruth and Boaz, is a sensitivity to the leading of God's spirit to embody his law. And that's the sensitivity that we should pray for. The reality is the Bible does not address every situation in which we might find ourselves. And to take a few propositional texts in the New Testament and try to boil them down to principles that apply in every situation is not helpful. Because if you do that, you're going to end up where this ethicist ended up and, you know, where the, the German is hiding the Jews and you're taking some propositions from the New Testament saying, you know, don't lie, and, and you're applying it wrongly. You're not being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit or to God's larger purposes in how his people ought to work out his law. All right, I, I hope that that's sufficiently clear. But if not, as you face moral dilemmas, pray and ask God's Spirit to give you wisdom to embody his action in the world in a way that protects others and that furthers God's kingdom. I think maybe that's a better principle that that we can act with as we move forward. So he tells her, keep this a secret, essentially. He doesn't want anyone else to know. And then he tells Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Now, more literally, her question is, who are you, my daughter? And I think she's trying to ask is, do you still belong to me or do you belong to Boaz now? So we sort of have this literary feature where she first meets Boaz. He asks, whose are you? Then on the threshing floor, he asks, who are you? And now Naomi is asking, who are you? And it's raising questions about identity. You know, who, who are you, my daughter? And in part, it's raising questions on one level about her identity with respect to Boaz. But I think on another level, this storyteller is trying to get us to ask, who is Ruth? Is she an Israelite or is she a Moabite? We'll get into that a bit more next week. But these questions about Ruth's identity raise questions about who gets to cash in on God's covenantal promises. Who gets to identify as God's people? 
And time and time again, we'll see that those who come to the Lord are welcomed as his people, even though they're not genetically Israelites. And we'll see this in the New Testament as well. So if you recall in texts like Matthew 11, where there's this Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and asks him to heal her daughter, and Jesus says this offensive thing to her. He says, you know, hasn't the Son of Man come for the sons of Israel and not for dogs? Okay, that's offensive, but I think it's highlighting the view of the, the way that Israelites would have viewed this Moabite woman as well as this Canaanite woman. And, and this lady responds in faith and she says, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the table. And over and over again, we've seen Ruth asking for protection and food almost as if she's saying even the Moabite dogs get to feed on the blessing of the Lord because God has set up Israel to bless the nations. So when we get to these questions of identity, I think it's good for us to start asking about ourselves, who am I? Am I one of God's people? And, and to press forward in faith and say even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the table. So as a, as a believer in Jesus, Jesus gives us something better to eat, okay? He says, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. We don't just get the crumbs under the table. He gives us the bread of life, and, and it changes our identity completely. And so coming to Jesus to ask for life is both a recognition of our identity as dogs, essentially, as outsiders, and it's also an expression of faith, knowing that we can be radically transformed to be God's people. That's what Ruth is demonstrating every time she petitions God or his people in, in the book of Ruth. And Boaz responds accordingly. He, he responds, I think, as Jesus will respond in a greater way as he comes as the bread of life and as he acts as our redeemer. More, more on that in a moment. But Boaz talks to Ruth, he has her bring out this shawl, and he gives her six measures of barley. I don't know how much that is, and I don't know how big a shawl was, but we get the idea that he's, he just gives her these six scoops of barley. Now, the narrator doesn't explain what's going on there. Perhaps it's because if Ruth is walking back while it's still dark by herself, she's going to have an excuse. You know, you, she's got this thing full of barley she's bringing back the the necessary food. So I think there were, there were some times when I was trying to get away with something as a kid and I'd have to walk through our living room to get upstairs and my dad could see me from the living room. And so I just grab like I'm pretending to grab something and take it up that I need when really I'm just trying to sneak up a pack of Oreos or something that I shouldn't have had. Well, I think that's kind of what's going on here. I think Boaz on the one hand is just giving Ruth an excuse for being out. And, and so he has devised a scheme to get her back home without anybody asking any questions. So she gets home. There's this question about her identity. And then Ruth tells Naomi everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So here's the second reason that Boaz gave these measures of barley to Ruth. It's so that she wouldn't go back to her mother-in-law empty-handed. What is the significance of that? Well, I think it's twofold. In the, in the book of Job, Job's friends over and over tried to tell Job all of the wrong things that he did to deserve God's punishment on him. 
And one of them is in Job 22. I think it's his friend Eliaphaz. I'm not saying that name right. Don't quote me on that. But in Job 22, this friend is saying, Job, you've been a wealthy dude and you've gotten this because you've disenfranchised other people and you have sent away widows empty-handed. And, and I think that there's this idea that those who mistreat widows, who send them away empty-handed, are people who act in a way that's antithetical to God's provision for his people, and antithetical to God's care for the vulnerable. So Boaz is demonstrating that he's a guy who's acting as God's agent in this world once again. He's not going to send away the widow empty-handed. But then I think secondly, and more personally to this situation, Boaz is putting a down payment on what he will do if he marries Ruth. So he's not out just to get this younger lady to marry him. And as I've mentioned before, the ancient rabbis say Boaz is like 80. I think it's more likely that he's probably in his 50s or something like that. R- Ruth is likely in her mid-20s. And so, on the, you know, someone could look at Boaz and say, this guy is just taking advantage of this younger lady and he's just in it for himself. But I, th- I think what Boaz is trying to demonstrate is that this marriage is not just about him getting what he wants. Instead, he is going to continue to care for Naomi after the fact. In the larger story then, as we track Naomi's movement from empty to full, we've seen her empty in two ways. The first emptiness was when she and her family left Bethlehem because of the famine. So there was an emptiness of food. Okay, so the famine of food, and then her children die. So we could call that, and she can't have any more kids. So we could call that a famine of fertility. And either way, she's empty both with respect to food and with respect to children. Well, at this point, Boaz is demonstrating that he is the acting hand of God to make her full with respect to food. So as we're tracking this development in the life of Naomi, the first spot, the first section of emptiness is now being filled. Now, it raises the question, what about offspring? What about children? Is God going to make her family full once again or not. So the story's not over, but God has been progressively acting. And if we are following the parallels, I've talked about this encounter between Boaz and Ruth at midnight is a parallel to their first encounter in the daylight. Well, in that same way, Naomi was first empty with respect to food and then with respect to children. And now in the parallel movement, she's full with respect to food. And so we can anticipate that God will continue to be faithful. He'll continue to show steadfast love and he'll provide a child for for Naomi. We'll get into that, Lord willing, next week. But, But track that. God cares about Naomi. God cares about this widow who has been bitter towards him. God cares about this lady who abandoned the land and abandoned faithfulness to the Lord and then accused God of turning his hand against her and dealing with her in terms of evil instead of in terms of good. And I think the way that we can respond to that is realizing that we often accuse God of dealing with us in terms of evil. But, but the good news is, is that God doesn't give up with us on us when we start to accuse him. When, when we start to blame God for our problems, 
he doesn't hold that against us. God is a merciful God who delights in showing faithful love and steadfast kindness to his people, even when they, they look at him like children who, who don't know how good they have it. So in, in the same way that your child might look at you and say, you are so mean to me, or you don't care about me, or, and they might even say, I don't love you anymore, or I'm not going to play with you anymore. That, that's us with respect to God all the time. And, and where you might be tempted to, to look at that kid and say, you are so naive and I, I should just let you have it. I'm not going to give you food anymore. I'm not going to let you have fun. Well, God looks at us and, and he woos us back to himself by showing us kindness and love. He did this in the first place by, by bringing a harvest to Israel and allowing Naomi to come back. Naomi didn't return until she already had heard that there was a harvest in Israel. And God is continuing to fill her and bless her and bring her back to himself. So while I keep saying that Naomi is the central figure here, God, this story is really about God and his kindness and steadfast love to bring about bitter people back to himself. So I want to encourage you, if you are bitter towards the Lord, know that he deals kindly with bitter people, that he welcomes bitter people to him, that he welcomes doubtful, faithless people to him. So think of someone like Thomas. When, when Thomas said things like, I will never believe. Thomas is like the male version of Ruth in a way. And what does Jesus do? He walks in and says, come to me. Feel, touch me, know me, come back to me. Well, that's what God wants to do with you. So, so if you feel bitter and empty and full of doubt, you sense a lack of faith in your life, know that God has not abandoned you. He's beckoning you back to himself. And we see that in, if, if that's true for Naomi, it's true for you as well. I, I think we can say that God is drawing you back to him. So, so come, come back to him. So, so we, we're tracking this development in Naomi, but I want to now draw your attention to this theme of rest, this theme of rest that pervades the Old Testament and, and into the New. So from the very beginning, in creation, God worked six days and on the seventh he rested, and that's a pattern for the Israelite worker for the seventh day of Sabbath rest. And then the late, later on, Old Testament authors talk about Israel being welcomed into the promised land where God's presence is in terms of entering into God's rest. So we think in the Psalms at times, there's this declaration that these individuals didn't believe, so he swore in his wrath he would not let them enter his rest. Well, that's talking about entering into the promised land, entering into the fulfillment of the covenantal promises. So in principle, as we talk about entering into God's rest, I think of it in terms of entering into the fullness of God's covenantal promises for his people. Well, the author of Hebrews picks this up using that same language, and he says that we ought to strive to enter that rest. Strive through obedience and faith to enter that rest. That's in Hebrews chapter 3 through 5, but especially chapters 4, if you want to consider that. But the author of Hebrews often talks about Jesus as the, the pinnacle of the rest that we're welcomed into. 
And in fact, Jesus's own words speak in this way as he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This theme of rest is really, really important. So keep these full Bible soundings in mind as we remember in Ruth 3, 1, where she is welcoming Ruth into rest. She says, is it not right for me to find rest for you in the home of a husband? And I, I didn't emphasize this as we passed through it a week ago, but what's significant about this is that she prayed this prayer earlier in chapter one, but the rest in the home of that husband would have been rest in the land of Moab in the, under the God of Moab, Kamosh, in it, with a Moabite. So the rest that Naomi envisioned for Ruth there was a kind of rest that is not rest at all. But now, as she is in the land and she is putting faith and hope in the Lord to provide for her, and as she's blessing the Lord, she's now trying to position Ruth to find rest in the land. In, in the God of the land and with a man who is an Israelite who recognizes the God of the land. So what I think we've seen here is a subtle development in Ruth that now pictures rest, not in terms of the land of Moab and their gods where she sent Orpah, but now in the land of Yahweh and in the land of Israel. So she's suggesting you will find rest here. And then at the end of the chapter, after Ruth has described all that's happened, Naomi says, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. So Naomi is indicating to Ruth, you are starting to taste already of the rest that is to come. In the same way that I'm tasting of the provision that is to come with these six measures of barley, you are starting to taste of the rest that is to come. So you've embodied God, God's action. You've carried out your responsibility. Now rest and rely on your Redeemer to act on your behalf. Now, as a side note, last week I also tried to connect this text a bit to Noah acting to secure rest for the land. Well, I think it's interesting that there's this reference to six measures of barley and then the seventh period of rest. And I, I think this mirrors the creation, six days of creation and then a seventh day of rest. Again, I'm probably stretching things. That's the danger of what us biblical theology guys do sometimes. We, we start to see things where they're not there. But I think the six measures of barley is pointing us till the work is happening. And then there's this entrance into rest. All right. And, and that's what God welcomes us into. Now, I drew the connection to these New Testament soundings of rest, and I want to bring them together in the position of the Redeemer who, who brings rest. So Boaz is acting here as a Redeemer. And in fact, he's going beyond his Redeemer responsibilities to bring rest to both Ruth and Naomi. So what we're seeing pictured in Boaz is a guy who be, goes beyond the letter of the law to, pro, to provide rest and blessing. Well, I don't think that we can call Boaz a Christ figure per se, because none of the New Testament authors do, but he's stepping into the role of a redeemer and going beyond the responsibilities that that redeemer had. 
And I think when we look to Jesus, we see another one who takes up that redeemer mantle and goes beyond any responsibility that he might have according to the letter of the law to provide rest for people of all sorts and of all kinds. Jesus steps into a role where he regularly has communal meals with sinners and tax collectors. He regularly heals Gentiles. He regularly welcomes the rich and the poor into his redemptive rest. And when we read in Old Testament text of individuals who provide rest, we need to look at the larger message of the Bible and see how God has worked through Boaz to provide rest, but he continues through the rest of redemptive history to bring rest to his people. So as we continue reading the Old Testament, we see things set up like the the Davidic kingdom that's intended to bring rest to Israel and to the nations. And then we see later on these prophets who are calling people to find rest and refuge under the wing of Yahweh. And it reminds us as we see failures in this over and over and over again, that we need a redeemer who will bring us rest. And and I'm trying to make the point that Jesus is the redeemer who brings a lasting rest that no other redeemer has done before. So as we read this book and as we consider Ruth, we definitely want to hear the story as an isolated story. It's just looking at the characters and the events within that story. But we also want to then see how this story contributes towards the larger work of God's redemption and also reiterates the patterns of human experience of loss and filling by the work of the Lord that point us to a final filling in Jesus Christ. Now, as a Christian, you might say, that's all well and good. I'm looking to Jesus for my rest, but I feel empty. I'm looking for Jesus to Jesus for hope, and I see none. On the one hand, I want to push you to question whether or not you are genuinely looking to Jesus for hope and rest. I would suggest that many of us can think and convince ourselves that we're looking to Jesus for hope and rest. But in reality, the fact that we spend more time reading the newspaper and social media than our Bibles indicates that we're probably looking to friendship or political entities or to a stimulus check for rest, rather than looking to Jesus for the kind of rest that transcends any restful experience in this world. So on on that side of it, I want to push you and say, if you're not experiencing rest, you may not actually be looking for it in Jesus. So do do a heart check and ask others to help you to, to see blind spots to know whether or not you're actually looking to Jesus for rest. But then on the other side, I just want to encourage you and say that you can find rest in Jesus. Trust in him, look to him, And know that the rest you experience now is an already not yet kind of rest. The fullness of our rest is when the new creation comes and we have the resurrection of the body. So as long as you're in this body and you get sore from sleeping in a weird position or like I did the other day, I sneezed and it hurt. These sort of things remind us that we're in an already not yet category of life. And that means our experience of rest will be an already not yet kind of rest. 
so we can have peace and rest that is not of this world. And, and we wait for that day when a new world comes and we have the fullness of peace and rest. So don't give up faith or hope that Jesus truly is your rest. Instead, recognize where you are in the redemptive timeline. And at this point in the redemptive timeline, you are called to suffer. You're called to participate in the sufferings of Christ. You're, you're called to live in a nation that doesn't love God, and you're, live, you're called to be a citizen of a different nation. So you're always going to feel uncomfortable in, in it's some sense of unease, but that doesn't mean that Jesus does not provide rest. It just simply means that he's, he's bringing the fullness of rest in a little bit. He's coming quickly. So pray for his return. Come to the Lord's table next Sunday, and as you participate in, in that table, declare that Christ is coming. Proclaim his death until he comes, and know that until that day comes, there are things that are going to stink about this life, and, and it doesn't mean that Jesus is not making good on his promises. He is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, as, as I think the King James put it, or he's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Find your rest in him and put your hope in the day that is to come. Pray for that day, and as we gather together, let's find our hope in Jesus now, and let's orient ourselves to that day that will come where we will, we will find rest forevermore.